Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. All right. All right. How's everyone doing today? Hope everyone is having a fantastic week. Uh, Today we are going to continue our study in Luke. The Gospel of Luke will be in chapter 11. We're talking about the Pharisees' blasphemy. Also, we'll be talking about Beelzebul, which has always been a difficult word for me to say, but I guess we'll try our best today. But we're going to be in uh, chapter 11, verse 14, and work our way through 23. And then we will actually go into another set of scripture, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. As we enter into uh, this part of the conversation with Jesus, he had just provided uh, the Lord's Prayer early on in chapter 11, the first part of chapter 11, and teaching the disciples how to pray. And then as we do that, as we continue on, and we read, then Jesus switches all of a sudden to speaking about uh, blasphemy, uh, of uh, not, yeah, of of Beelzebul and uh, of the, the Pharisees, for the most part, even claiming that Jesus is from Beelzebul, also known as Satan in some cases. And so they, the crowd that is following Jesus, you have more than the Pharisees, you have many others here, I guess, who are asking questions as well. It's not just the Pharisees here. Who are asking Jesus, or trying to figure out who Jesus is. Where does his power come from? Uh, and so it's almost like, it's, it's very intriguing. Whose side is he on? Is he on our side? Is he doing it for his own benefit? Is he truly... Uh, the son of God, as he claims, is he uh, one of the pagan gods who has some power? So many, so many questions. Uh, so this was a concern of the people. We're, we're, we're not told, like I said, if they're disciples specifically or Pharisees or the apostles. Uh, most likely just people who have been following him as he went from one town to the next. Uh, it seems like the Pharisees, he doesn't really directly speak to the Pharisees again until uh, verse 37, if I remember correctly. Yeah, what to the Pharisees there. When he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him, anyways, he speaks to a Pharisee there. But at this point, it's kind of more to the, so the, to the general audience. Uh, what we sense here is a, a sense of anxiety about who this person, Jesus, is. Is he good or is he evil? Whose side is he on? Uh, the empire of evil has a similar anxiety, if you really think about it, as it creaks and groans underweight, not uh, really knowing what Jesus would do next and how it would keep people under its control. It, as in the evil empire, keep people under its control. So with, with Jesus, he was a kind of a... Um, uh, some would refer to him possibly as a, a loose cannon. That's not a very reverent way to speak of Jesus. But to them, this individual who had shown up on the scene uh, was trying to change everything. Uh, he was exercising demons. Uh, he was doing all these things that uh, others kind of had done in the past, but not really. They've, there are magicians who are able to seemingly exercise demons, and there are magicians who are able to do a lot of magic. The dark arts of the spiritual world are a very interesting place, which is beyond the scope of uh, what we're doing within this uh, video, but it is very interesting to see their response to this. We'll get a little bit deeper into that as we go through here. Uh, this story is, is covered in, in Matthew and Mark as well. Uh, Matthew and Luke kind of give it a little bit more detail than what Mark does, but most likely... As we know, Matthew and Luke both borrowed from Mark as well as from the other sources to put this uh, this story 
together. Let's see here. Do I want to read? Yeah, no, I'm not going to read quite yet. So I want to give a quick overview of who this idea of Bezel Bull was. And I'll probably start just referring to him as Satan in, in many ways because that's how he eventually became translated as. Uh, so the, the, the word Bezel Bull, Bezel Bull uh, is, has been known as Prince of Flies or Lord of Flies, not Lord of the Flies, uh, or Lord of Manure Pile or the Manure Pile a reference uh, to Satan. Uh, it was used against Jesus multiple times, and then we see it one, one of those times here. Most likely this word uh, was derived from the Philistines, uh, their god Beelzebub, uh, and it was pretty much in the city of Ekron is evidence that they had, um, when that, and that's when it would have been Lord of Flies, and there's evidence in that area there were fly-like idols. Uh, golden flies and some would say that the god would send out oracles via flies and so that's kind of how it got its name most likely this word that we're, we're looking at the is a corruption of Beelzebul which means Baal the prince which was not too bad to be called uh, and it was most likely uh, distorted on purpose to, 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 to demean Beelzebul uh, by the time it gets to the point of Jesus, the, the Syriac version of this world, Beelzebul, is Lord of Dung. Uh, what we know from them, and this is why most likely the, the word was uh, corrupted, was that it was common practice back then to apply the names of gods of enemy nations to the devils of one's own religion. This is why the Jews would use this name to describe devil or Satan. So they've grabbed another god, Beelzebul, or Beelzebub many variations of that if you looked it up, and have now applied that to the name of, of Satan using another religion's name or another god to, to do that. Okay, let's read a little bit here, and then we'll jump into uh, verse 14 and start our explanations and start working through all of that here. So chapter 11, verse 14, And he was, Jesus being he, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. We'll see more about that here in a minute. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For he say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if, I, and, if by, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. It's interesting. Jesus gets really philosophical here. But if I cast out demons uh, by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when somebody is stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Then goes on, depending on what you're, which translation you're reading, this could go on into immediately a new section related to unclean spirits coming and going and all the recklessness that they can cause. Uh, but here we, we will stop here at verse 23 with the infamous uh, George W. Bush uh, carrier quote that he made you know, 20-ish years ago. If you're not for us, you're against us, he would say. Anyways, uh, back to verse 14. We start with a mute man similar to Zechariah. Uh, as you know, he was the father of John the Baptist. He became mute 
because he did not believe the angel who had come to speak to him to say, hey, hey, you're going to have this son. He's going to be John the Baptist, or he's gonna be, his name is going to be John, the name of John the Baptist, the name of John. He did not believe and thus was mute. He didn't believe because they were so old. He's like, there's no way this could possibly happen. Uh, and he, he doubted, and so he became mute, which is interesting. Some people actually said that it's not the man that's mute, it's the demon that's mute. And that's, that's kind of an interesting way. But they say based on how the Greek is kind of laid out, you could also argue that it could have been a mute demon. Uh, but anyways, that's more of a sidebar. But we do, well, a few things we do know. We're, we're not sure why this man is mute. Uh, it, what, what caused this demon to, to enter this man or how long it has, has been? Was he born this way? Uh, we also don't know why he, why he has been afflicted with being mute or why Jesus chose to help this man. There's so many questions we can look at here and ask just based on there wasn't a whole lot of information that Luke gave because it's really not the point. It's not the point to know all of the background story of this man. And to be honest, some of the people who were reading this story at that time or hearing this story or hearing Jesus speak would have known. They would have known this man. They would have known why he possibly could have been afflicted as a mute or he was always mute since birth or there's so many different ways, like I said, to look at this. As we know from other parts of Luke, especially if we look at chapter 4, uh, verse 31 through 37, people believe that demons came from giants who are themselves progeny of the angels and women that we know from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Uh, <clears throat> so, so to many, uh, demon possession was not because of misconduct of an individual or even of a family. Uh, it was the unfortunate result of human lust. Uh, first Enoch actually wrote that demons would continue to be present until God's kingdom arrived uh, and at that point they would be rounded up and kept in cages at the edges of the world. I remember they did not think the world was round. That's a very more modern idea that they did not have at that point. Another way to look at this, uh, people had a very different world view back then. Uh, most saw evil as being random and that they were powerless against evil. Uh, they, they knew that taxes, the local economy, disease, drought, whatever, uh, were beyond their control and as was demon possession. So, there, of course, there were some who thought, well, that person obviously sinned, so well, that, well, that's different. Bad things happen because you sin, but this is more of, well, eh, well, it happens, unfortunately. Uh, and that's uh, just a very interesting way to look at it, and that's just the way they would respond to, to such a thing. As we look at uh, verse 15 here, uh, this group seems to see exorcism in three different ways. Uh, some are very amazed by what they're seeing here. Uh, they're very positive and not necessarily seeing it as Jesus being a prophet, but just probably just another itinerant exorcist cruising through the city or cruising through the town, the region, uh, and, you know, doing his thing, what exorcists do. Uh, others think that Jesus is either controlled by Beelzebul or that he has somehow harnessed the power of Beelzebul for his own purposes. And there were also people who would try to do that. Uh, and uh, that, that happened as well. So it, it, none of this is like, oh, wow, that's crazy. These are crazy thoughts. Uh, it was very much something that could have happened. Uh, this could have also been to them an extension of magic, a topic that Luke will pick up not only here in this gospel, but as well as in, in Acts, uh, where he has to be clear that the power of God is much more powerful than magic. And so Luke is having to make that point here in an Acts as well related to the power of God versus the power of magic. So we know that there are two very different things. Magic and miracles are two very different things. Now some people would argue that, but we're, make, we're, we're seeing based on actual how miracles happen and how magic happens, they are two very different things. One being divine and one not. 
Uh, recalling from chapter 8 of Acts, verses 9 through 24, uh, there was Simon the magician who saw magic in the works of Jesus as the same. He wanted to purchase the power of the Spirit to add to his collection of magic tricks, but he was quickly reprimanded for this desire. Uh, there are other times where uh, the magic showed up. That's the sons of Sceva back in uh, Acts 19, 11 through 20, where, this, like I said, the sons of, sons of Sceva, uh, who were kind of an itinerant uh, Jewish exorcist group, brothers, and uh, they were in Ephesus trying to exorcise a man possessed and instead beat up by the man, causing all the people in town to throw away their magic books in a large uh, burning fire. You can imagine that would have been very expensive based on the cost of books at that time period. During this period, like I say, people were really into to magic, into spells. They would wear amulets. Uh, they would consult books on spells, mix potions, recite lists of powerful words, and attempts to ward off demonic attacks. So they didn't know what their other options were, and so this is, what, this is what they would do in order to keep the demons away because, hey, it's random. Let's just do whatever we can, and maybe if we, if we say the right words do the right potions, say the right things, the demons will stay away. <clears throat> Anyways, very, very interesting. So for them to say he casts out demons by Beelzebul would make a lot of sense to them when it seems like it's a little folksy to us today because we've been around 2,000 years later and we see a lot of history that they did not see. Of course, they didn't see because they haven't been around for 2,000 years later. You get all the history from those 2,000 years-ish. All right, as we look at verse 16, we have another section of the crowd who wants to see a sign from heaven. This would then prove it was of divine origin, but Jesus is very clear. He doesn't say it specifically here, but he's very clear that, hey, I am the divine guy. I am God. I am the Son of God, and I am here. The kingdom of God is among you. Uh, uh, me sending something from heaven is not going to change your mind. Uh, prophets have tried this for years. That didn't work. Uh, so don't say that if you we do one more sign, one more sign we'll believe, because we all know that's not going to be true. We can compare to what's happening here in verse 16 to what Moses faced with the Pharaoh when the Pharaoh would not believe Moses until he was able to do something, as in Moses was able to do something that could not be replicated by the Pharaoh's missions, magicians. Uh, we, we see that all three groups see that Jesus can do miracles, but their response ranges from being amazed to being repulsed, as if he is from Beelzebul. And that's just the way it was working for him at that point. Uh, all of these groups uh, accuse and put Jesus to the test and do not ask for delivery, forgiveness, or understand that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. Again, those who are following Jesus miss the point, and that happens to us today. We're following Jesus, we believe in Jesus, we say we're going to do the things of Jesus, but yet we seem to a lot of times miss the point. It's unfortunately how humans many times respond to, um, to God moving around us, and that was happening to them during that time period. As we look at verses 17 and 18, Jesus knows uh, what they are thinking. He then provides an explanation that follows the same order as those who are speaking against them. Jesus counters a Beelzebul accusation by beginning with how illogical they are. Uh, Jesus' first example is very much something they would be understand and have probably experienced about how a house of a kingdom is divided. Uh, they will not survive. You think of, you could also have a, a house, you know, like I said, house, kingdom, palace, uh, whatever. Uh, if they are logical, which hopefully most were at that moment, they would know that he was saying that if Satan has been divided against himself, how will the kingdom of Satan survive? 
uh, if they can agree with that, they can agree that healing a speechless person is good and not evil. So if Satan is evil, and they can agree that making someone mute, who, who is mute, unmute, is good, then Satan cannot or will not do it as it is against his nature. You can argue uh, that, well, Satan would unmute the person, but there's still, what, what is Satan's motivation at the end of the day? So he could, would he? I don't know. I don't know if it's against his nature or not, but that is one argument. <clears throat> but to Jesus' point, why would Satan do this? It's deliberate self-destruction. So that's one way to look at it. As we look at verses 19 through 20, this next part of the argument comes from the idea that there were Jewish exorcists uh, who were not followers of Jesus. So when Jesus here brings up your sons, uh, means your people and not mine. He could be referring to the Jewish exorcists who were not necessarily following Jesus. Uh, they were truly Jews, Jewish, but they weren't Jesus followers. And, and Jewish. Maybe eventually they were. Uh, some have also translated your sons as the actual disciples because you remember they went out and exorcised demons in the name of God uh, at one point. Uh, and so they could also be uh, the folks that the people would know. They would know like local magicians, healers, and or exorcists uh, who are known to help people uh, and get over illnesses attributed to demon possession. And so that was a, uh, my understanding, it was a profession to have healers and to have magicians and to have exorcists to help people who felt ill. And many times they thought it was something to do with demonic activity uh, or some sort of, um, yeah. Anyways, as we continue on here, uh, Jesus acknowledges that, yes, these people do cast out demons as well as, and, and then asks about comparable sources of power. Uh, again, the logic is, if I'm doing this through the power of Beelzebul, what is the exorcist power? Who is giving the exorcist power? Uh, this argument also presumes uh, what the first did, that anyone casting out demons by, nece by necessity is doing it without the help of Satan's power. Not always doing it in a bad way, in a mean way. So that if so, that is two of the three. Uh, these accusations are not true. Uh, Jesus now gives them the right interpretation to get out of the exorcism, or to understand why he did the exorcism or why it's even happening. So he's certainly not advancing Satan's kingdom here, uh, but he is performing the word of God. Uh, Luke uses the finger of God in verse 20. He also uses it in Matthew 12, 28. You would see Spirit of God. Uh, both, are, both are the same. The finger of God idea connects all the way back to Exodus 8, 19. Uh, again, this goes back to Moses when he's countering the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's magicians. After the plague of lice, the magician of Pharaoh say, that is the finger of God. I think they're also gnats. Maybe gnats is a better way to say it. I think I've seen more translations with gnats and lice, but... That's a whole other, the gnats coming from the, the, the earth, turning into gnats and covering people, which is just fascinating to think about. Uh, so if this is true, that Satan would not deliberately weaken his own kingdom, and that an exorcism is a deliberate attack on Satan, then Jesus is working with the power of God and not Satan. So they are then in the presence of the kingdom of God. Anywhere Jesus is, is the kingdom of God and not of Satan. So uh, when he says here, da, 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 da. <clears throat> uh, that's the de -de. but if I cast out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you uh, that is the kingdom of God also is among you it's here uh, there's a couple ways to actually look at that one uh, so, so some have argued uh, that it would have made more sense to say the kingdom of God has come upon Satan uh, but instead he uses you which is leading uh, to the following verses that those who are doubting the power of God and the work of Jesus is doing 
puts them on the side of Satan. And of course, at that point, we know they have chosen poorly. You've chosen poorly. Uh, so what about the Jewish exorcist? Uh, did this also prove the coming uh, of the kingdom of God or the presence of the kingdom of God? The skeptics will not be convinced either way. And that, again, continues to this day. And let's continue on with that, that thought. Uh, but if we see the healing of God in the lives of people, we know that God is present and not insist that the work or miracles of Jesus are unique signs. You know, we've already seen, like I said, uh, in these Gospels that the apostles, the 72, and an unnamed exorcist not connected with Jesus could also perform God's work in the name of Jesus. So the issue here, and Jesus is pretty clear about this, not who's doing the healing. The point is being made is that the healing is part of God's work and the sign of God's kingdom amongst the people. With that said, uh, some exorcists did have the kingdom of God as their number one priority, so would exercise in hopes of binding the demons for their own, for their, they did not, sorry, that, you have to use not, uh, did not have the kingdom of God as their number one priority, so would exercise in hopes of binding the demons for their own power, their own use. Jesus is not referring to these people here, at least not as those who are furthering the kingdom of God. If they were exercising demons to use the demons in other ways, then that's not furthering the kingdom of God. But if you're an exorcist and you're exercising demons uh, to, to help that person in the name of God, then that's furthering the kingdom of God. And there were some who would, would do that. We read about a couple of them, at least one of them. Uh, verses 21 through 22, we have a observation. Uh, some would say even a parable, but most likely just an observation as the symbolism is limited here uh, to what we saw earlier regarding a divided house. Uh, Jesus makes an indirect reference back to the earlier name-calling of Beelzebul that the Pharisees uh, were referring to. I, I say Pharisees, it, it could have been, it didn't say it was Pharisees, and the Pharisees said, you're Beelzebul. Uh, it could have been somebody else. So the idea of Lord of Dung, they're referring to Jesus as the Lord of Dung or Lord of Flies. Jesus refers to himself at the same name, knowing that the name also means, and originally meant, uh, at least before it was demeaned, uh, Lord of the house. Then Jesus is, so what Jesus is doing here, he's claiming lordship over the house of God. So making a big, big point here as he starts talking about the strong man and the stronger man. So we look at this story of the stronger of the, the two strong men, as Jesus and defeating Satan, and Jesus taking an armor of Satan away. So the good guys win. Yay, we're, we're all super happy. Another way to look at this is kind of more from a sardonic perspective, uh, where Jesus is possibly mocking the the doubters, uh, 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 where he's actually uh, providing an account and explaining why empires fail, uh, even if they are not divided internally. Uh, that and again making the point that if the house is Satan's um, and the house is going to be overcome, uh, they are not. You know, Satan is not protected from the coming of the kingdom of God. So we have the man of the house of the palace. It's obviously a large enough building to have a, a courthouse. Is is armed and ready to go, ready to fight. But that does not mean the place of occupation is safe. There's always another tyrant or, or empire stronger. And you know the Romans were afraid of that because they had done the same thing uh, to the Greeks who were before them, and the Greeks had done that to the. It's not the Babylonians. The series Babylonians. There's a group missing after the Babylonians. Anyways. Um, unfortunately, it's it's happened. It's been happening empire over empire over empire has been uh, taking over and proving to be more powerful. Uh, the point here is that uh, no empire, no empire or armed protection can truly promise priests peace. 
not even Rome can promise that. So those opponents of Jesus must be careful about what they think protects them from evil. One other point is to this is that Luke is making a political statement regarding Jesus' words. So Rome, the, the emperor of Rome, and all his power and perceived divinity uh, of the emperor is not, is not the strong man who, who wins. This is one way to look at it. So, you know, Rome was thinking they, they kind of had it all figured out. The Pharisees, they thought they were in a relatively comfortable position because they were in the back pockets of the Romans. And for the most part, um, uh, thought they were pretty safe. But Jesus is making a point here. Is, hey, it's, that's, that's not true. I'm more powerful than, than that. Uh, another way to look at this with Satan in the castle palace and Jesus is a strong man. So, so we see the palace here as the human in which the demon occupies. Jesus is the stronger man who comes in and defeats the strong man who occupies the palace and gives the palace back to his owner, the human who had been possessed, which again shows that Jesus is the liberator of all humanity. You know, through this, we see a lot of uh, military imagery uh, because Jesus is making a point regarding spiritual kingdoms at war, and it's true. We don't see a lot of it within uh, the spiritual realm, but we are aware of it in many ways. And so throughout Jesus' ministry is a, is a clash of kingdoms, the kingdom of, the kingdoms of good and evil. And in these cases, we see it in our own realm of Beelzebul. But Jesus being referred to as, as Beelzebul, and then we, now we have the, the strong man and the stronger man. All right, let's wrap this one up. Verse 23, uh, what we see here is a negative restatement of chapter 9, verse 50. Whoever is not against you is on your side. From 950, uh, this was to be an encouragement to the disciples, and that is okay if there are other people on the team who are helping out. This was when they were concerned about someone else exercising demons. Mark 940 also has a similar uh, saying regarding those who are, are for or against uh, this is Mark's version of the other exorcist uh, who is not part of the core group. <clears throat> so we talked about that briefly just a few minutes ago. In this time period, it is very much uh, believed that to be successful in politics, we'd have to pick a side and would flex to whatever side gave you the advantage. And this is related to what Jesus is saying here about uh, there in verse 23, who is not with me is against me, and he, he who does not gather with me scatters. Uh, so there were network alliances where our friends, where your friends were friends of others in your network. You're, you were also enemies with the enemies of your friends within your network. And those networks would kind of shift depending to whoever was in power. It wouldn't really matter if you really agreed. Everything is more like who's in power. I want to be with that group. And that's kind of one thing that we see happening here. The, the idea of scattering is a reference to the word of, uh, it could be a reference to shepherds and, and their management over the sheep, which of course could be Israel. This could be like the uh, a reference of Israel. It could be more church specific. So at, at this point, the church was actually going uh, before this gospel is written. So this, the scattering of the people within the church and who's taking care of it. And, you know, are they, are they scattering and not remaining faithful? Uh, they, they will come across others who they would not expect to be someone who would further a kingdom. But guess what? Uh, there are and they are. And, and that's one thing that Jesus is pointing out here is that those people are with you. Even though it may not seem like those people are with you, there are people in this world who may not look, act, and say the words exactly the same way you do, but they are literally moving forward with the kingdom of God and uh, in many ways better than, than many of us who think we're, we're doing it the right way are. The naysayers and doubters that we see are trying to scatter or split those trying to further the kingdom. So there are those as well, those who, who naysay and those who doubt, try to split up the, 
uh, try to split up the, the churches and the kingdom of God, uh, while Jesus is letting them know that he is trying to draw the kingdom together, and there are many types of people who will be involved with this. So there will be many people fall from all over the world will come, and they are not, not come, but they're, well, they eventually will probably come all come together, but they are all working together. We are all working together for the same cause of furthering the kingdom of God. And that's, I believe, one of the major points that we see here. So those who are with Jesus uh, are all working towards the furthering of the kingdom, kingdom of God. And it may not always exactly be the people that you think are doing it. Uh, and the people who you may not think doing it, they are doing it. And then, of course, then God uses people in many ways that we could never possibly expect. So that's where we are as we end Luke 11, 14 through 23. Now, good. Hi. Let's move over to uh, Luke 18, uh, 1 through 8. And let's talk a little bit about perseverance and the widow uh, and uh, have, a, have a quick overview of these uh, eight verses that are in chapter 18 of, of Luke. So let's get going here. So what we have this, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot going on here for being such a short scripture. But what we see uh, is Jesus teaching the necessity of having a hopeful, tenacious faith in the midst of a, a present ordeal or present oppression or present harm, uh, but just to continue to live with faith and to be people who are consistent in our, in our prayer to God for, uh, for his deliverance. For us to do what Paul taught, to pray at all times. Paul talked about this. Jesus speaks of this as well. Uh, this is one of few parables where the explanation comes first as we look into this here in a second. I remember that this gospel is written as an encouragement to Theophilus. So I think sometimes we, we forget who the original audience of the gospel of Luke was. It, he makes it very clear there in chapter 1. It's to Theophilus. But, uh, so it was written to Theophilus, but it was written for, for us and the people in that region and the people who were reading that and have been reading it ever since. Uh, we would need to reflect on chapter 17 from, from we talked about that, I guess, two sessions ago regarding the coming of the Son of Man and the world in which they currently lived. <clears throat> uh, Jesus seems to, to know that they will become frustrated. They, as in the people who follow God, they, as in the people who are following him, Right now, the disciples, the, the apostles, uh, the larger church community that is, is reading this and, and learning about who Jesus is, uh, that the, they, they'll possibly lose heart uh, based on eventual hostility that they will face. Uh, they will look like Paul. They'll look to Paul uh, for deliverance. No, they won't. They'll look like Paul when Paul is asking for deliverance and consummation of the kingdom, hoping it was coming soon. Because if you look at the letters that Paul wrote, it was his hope that the, the kingdom... Uh, the return of the Son of Man would happen much sooner than uh, than what actually happened or has happened up to this point. Uh, from the following chapter to this one, so from chapter 17 to chapter 18, we see adversity is the integral is is integral integral. I have to say that right. Integral integral to the process by which salvation comes, ensuring those who follow Him. Uh, that there will be divine vindication. That is the hope that we can hold, that eventually there will be divine vindication. So justice, as we see here, will return to the earth just as uh, along with the Son of Man. So let's look at these here. Let me jump over to chapter 18. 
uh, verses 1 through 8, parables on prayer. This is the first parable on prayer. <clears throat> we have a nice little introduction from Luke before Jesus starts speaking. And as you see here, I mentioned this briefly, that uh, there's actually an ex the explanation to the parable is the first thing that happens. And that doesn't happen most of the time. So let's, let's thank Jesus for doing that. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying, I want to look at this other just to da, 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 pray and not lose heart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He said in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect a man. Did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. You may also see adversary. Deliver me from my adversary. Protect me from my opponent. Uh, for a while he was unwilling, uh, but afterward he said to himself, a, a little soliloquy, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect here? With, I don't like the way this one said. I like the other one better. Let's see here. Ah, yeah, 18.6. And the Lord said, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him and night, him, to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith on earth? Uh, yeah, anyway, I, I like the NET's version of that a little bit better than the, I think that's the NASAB. Yeah, yeah, that, that we're looking at there. So we'll stick with that one. Okay, so verse 1. <clears throat> like I said, there's an explanation before the actual parable, which is very exciting for some. Uh, so even those without ears to hear can actually hear, but maybe they're not listening. That's the difference. Uh, we can look at this and see what persistent prayer can lead to here in, in verse 1. Uh, to know that we can be persistent and may even feel like we are being a little bit annoying, but that is okay. We're, we're never being annoying to, to God. We're, he's not like the other gods who found people's annoying and bothersome. He's a God who loves and uh, we have to remember that and not think that he's like the pagan gods who, who don't. Uh, God will provide an answer if we are persistent in our faith. Uh, he even provides an answer, I've found, sometimes if we're not persistent in our faith. Um, <clears throat> but it is about persistency related to that. Uh, Jesus is telling the disciples specifically, but as we know, there are many others around not to lose faith or to lose heart. So he is speaking directly to the apostles or the disciples here, it, it seems like. But, of course, there's many who would... Listen, uh, this concern that the disciples have, uh, is, and, as well as others, is delay of the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, we know that from the last chapter. Prayer, as we know from Jesus' uh, necessity in order to remain faithful, the prayer that Jesus is speaking of is not based on a pattern or repetitive prayer, but instead having an understanding of the openness to the benefaction or the, the gift of God, the gift of God that only God can provide. So we see that as we start there in, chapter, in verse 1 here of chapter 18. Uh, verses 2 through 3, we can see here that the judge, who's most likely a local magistrate with some poll status in the community, most likely he uh, handled financial like court cases or provided judgments over financial matters. He, he, he makes it clear, I wouldn't say he did not particularly, but he makes it very clear that he does not really care about uh, religion or people who are in need, or just people in general it seems maybe. Some have actually said that his attitude here is more of an attitude of ambivalence. He just 
Uh, he wants to just be neutral. He does not want to be a partisan. He does not want to be uh, partial. Uh, and he wants to be unbiased in his decision-making, which I think is a cop-out, to be honest, because I think the guy is pretty, pretty clear about what he's wanted to do here and doesn't really want to do anything. However, based on the context, like I said, it, it seems like it's more if he did not care about the widow at all. And when you think of the widow, we, a lot of times we think of widows, we think of our modern-day uh, context or ideas of widows, and that would be someone who is uh, older. Uh, someone much, much older, maybe in their 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s. It just depends. Uh, well, but we also know that you know widows can happen at any, any age, unfortunately. But most likely this widow was probably in her... Uh, 30s. Because most people don't live past, uh, make it out of their 30s. So to be in your 30s, it very likely uh, could have been that. In the context of the, this time within the Roman world, when someone did not fear God, uh, they were looked at as being wicked and evil. And that's just going back to this man who said he did not believe in God or believe in God or a God, which just would tell people, and that's not just in the, the Jewish or Christian context, that was in the, the Roman context as well. is like, this guy must be really wicked if he doesn't believe in the, a god or, or the god. <clears throat> uh, this man that we know is not a judge that we know from like chronicles or judges from the uh, Hebrew, Hebrew scripture, uh, though many of those judges had moments of being corrupt and some were just always corrupt. Uh, they were to be people of integrity and caring and were at least initially to have the fear of the Lord upon them. So that's not what this type of judge is. Uh, as we know about uh, widows in that culture, they were fully dependent on others, especially family members. Uh, if they did not get what they needed uh, <clears throat> to be handed to them, uh, they would not actually make it. Uh, this is consistent throughout the Jewish scriptures uh, that the widow symbolized the highest levels of uh, vulnerability and deprivation. We, we know that as we've read other parts of the scripture, especially through the Hebrew text. Uh, with this, they were to be cared for by God's people. It should be one of uh, the people of Israel's top priority. It should be now, as Christians, it should be one of our top priorities to care for those in need, like this widow. Luke is really good at, at displaying widows as the people above the rest in their exemplary piety and recipients of divine health. He kind of sets them up, puts them even on a possibly a pedestal of who, of who they are as these people who are in such high need but they're also very much people who are very pious in their, in their faith. Uh, from the context uh, of this time, we know that the widow is someone of little status and no representation, which is typical for widows, most, if not all widows, which is why she is in the magistrate's court on her own. It would be typical for a man to represent a woman in a setting like this as it was a place for men. That's where most men would go. Uh, we also know that the courts were corrupt and not seek to help those in need. Uh, and that's, that was just really unfortunate. Her, her only option was persistence and hope that the judge would change his mind. Uh, so Jesus here continues to bring up the widows to the people of Israel because he knows that they are not fulfilling their role of looking after widows. And what I mean by that is that there's multiple stories uh, that we have related to widows. And the people who are writing these scriptures, people like, and then we have Jesus who's speaking these words, knew that the, the, the priests, uh, the leaders of the Jewish people, the Jewish people in general, for the most part, were not taking their responsibility seriously of, of looking after widows, orphans, aliens. And so Jesus, in multiple ways, multiple times, brings this up. Uh, we don't know, as we look at this, who her adversary was. And it does not seem to matter. That is not the point of the parable. With that said, we could assume that it has something to do with uh, getting the resources that she needs in order to survive. Uh, the widow has no other hope 
and nobody to represent her. We see that here. She is out of options, much like the the, the menstruating woman that we woman that we know from chapter eight, verse forty-three from forty-eight. So has to make a bold move uh, by touching the garment of Jesus in order just to survive. She's tried everything else. All everything else has failed, and this is what she must do. Uh, we have the here again the uh, the the judge speaking to himself in verses four through. Five, the judge finally does what is most convenient for him and offers the widow her desire. He does not do this again out of sympathy or compassion for the woman. The pestering or, or badgering that we would read is not, is not really harsh enough. Uh, it's really sometimes hard to get the full effect, uh, the full emotional effect uh, out of Greek when you translate it into to English. <clears throat> It'd be more relevant for him to say something like that she's beating him, and we'll get a little bit more into that here in a second, uh, which, which of course led him to make his decision. His, his decision, though, is, is consistent with Jesus' description of him. It's not about commitment to God or a concern for the widow or even his concern for his standing in the community. He doesn't even really, it seems, care uh, what his reputation was. I mean, at least some judges, even though they didn't particularly care, they, they wanted to keep a positive reputation in the community and so they would do nice things for people but he didn't even want to do that he there's there's really nothing altruistic at all about this judge uh, some say he possibly was waiting for a bribe which is why he was holding out but it's hard to go with that based on how destitute uh, a widow would have been again it seems he is more motivated by the astonishing behavior of the widow uh, she is acting so out of character for a woman that that he may be concerned that she will do more than just speak loudly to him and eventually it seems uh, we well, let me take a step back. We don't know how long this woman has been coming to him, how long he's been saying no, uh, but based on the word uh, hupa pizzazzo, that's a fun one to say, uh, meaning to wear someone out by, con by being continually annoyed, but it actually goes even further by saying, as the way wearing me out is in giving me a black eye, it is, it is, is harsh, he probably deserves it, but it's, he, Luke here is making a boxing reference about how hardcore this woman has been in order to be able to survive. <clears throat> so Jesus is showing this this powerless, weak woman through her unbelievable initiative and persistence is getting the judge to change his mind. Uh, as we look at verses 6 through 8, Luke takes a break and reiterates that as the Lord or Jesus who's speaking and through this sets him up as the teacher or better said, reinforces him as such as the teacher. Uh, this gives him authority amongst those who are listening or reading actually at this point because Je Luke adds this later on. Jesus isn't talking and then Luke says, and, and the Lord said, and then Jesus continues, it's, you know, it's edited, it's added in. But what we have here, uh, Jesus says here after that, he says hear or listen. Listen to show is, is more of about it's, it's like giving a charge to those who are listening, those who are listening along. It's more than hearing, but, but listening leads to an appropriate action. Jesus wants them to do something. He wants us to do something. It wants just, oh, I hear what you're saying. That, that's a very nice thought. I think, I think that makes some sense. I think I'll do that, maybe, someday, if it's convenient. It's like, no, this is what I'm saying. Listen, this is how you must live. This is what you must do. Uh, Jesus calls the judge unjust to show how his phrase is analogous to chapter 16, verse 8, where Jesus' followers can remember that they can learn lessons about discipleship from worldly examples. So you can, you can watch what this judge is doing and know, hey, that's not the right way to act as people who are followers of Christ. That is, we are to be people of, of compassion and, and sympathy and of love and to help those who are in need and not to 
uh, only do it whenever it's convenient or they've worn us down or just to ignore them altogether. <clears throat> Verse 7, we continually, uh, we continue actually here with a double analogy where the judge is God and the widow is God's elect and, and typically those who are faithful to God. So you could, the, the elect, there's many ways to define the elect, but one way is to look at it, those who are just remaining faithful. But I think what Luke is trying to uh, say here is, is and, and when you see the word elect, it's not, hey, this point, you know, 1400 years down to John Calvin. And, and, and Calvin, he's not at all as Calvinistic as a lot of people try to make him out to be now. But, anyways, um, <clears throat> It wasn't like oh, just the chosen ones, uh, the uh, the frozen chosen, those who are just you you five thousand people who are obviously the ones who are made to uh, to be with God forever. It's it's not like that at all. I'm sorry about that voice. Uh, but so, but Luke here is being uh, very much more specific, as in they're the ones who are like the widow in unjust circumstances, crying out to God for relief. Those are the elect that Jesus is referring to here. We can look at Jesus putting an eschatological framework here uh, around this parable with the granting of justice and the coming of the Son of Man. And again, I'm still in verse 7. Uh, Jesus makes a contrast or seems to want to make a contrast between the unjust judge and God. He, he makes an argument from lesser to greater with the judge being the lesser. So the, if the unjust God will finally grant justice, how much more justice will God give? Which obviously the answer to that is significantly more. Uh, as we think through this, we have to keep in mind how Luke, throughout this gospel, has described God as gracious, attentive, and beneficent, or, of course, generous to his <coughs> people. So to see this, you have to understand or be able to have a comprehension of the entire gospel and just can't grab this uh, few verses out of context. You have to understand that throughout this gospel that Luke writes, you can see the goodness and graciousness of God. Jesus also provides with an analogy between the widow and those chosen ones who cry in the day and night. Uh, this is similar to what we see from the prophetess Anna, uh, in, who in Luke 2.37 worshipped in the temple day and night, and eventually we know met Jesus um, and was part of that ceremony. Uh, Paul also writes about a widow being similar to Anna in uh, 1 Timothy 5.5, 5, widows as those who continue to pray day and night. So again, that goes to the, the piousness and the piety of these these women. Uh, we can go back all the way to uh, Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 9, where there was also crying out, where the people of God actually cried out to God day and night, and he delivered justice. And so a lot of times when you see this crying out, day and night, crying out, day and night, crying out pattern, uh, it is the hope that justice will be served by God. The, uh, if we stay in Deuteronomy, uh, we went to Deuteronomy 24, 21, 22, so a couple chapters back, uh, Israel is under divine care and is now to show the same care to the widows, aliens, and orphans. And that, again, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about what Jesus is trying to reiterate and remind them, hey, this is your job. As, as the people of God, you are to care for widows, aliens, and orphans. Yes, even the illegal aliens that you guys, like some people, not you guys, sorry, that some people refer to, those who cross the border, those who do so legally and illegally, uh, all are to be cared for in some way, to be loved as, as God has loved us. 
The theme from the previous chapters continued here where those who are God's people will be treated in an unjust way, in an unjust world, which is why verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 portray the coming of vindication. And if I remember that right, we have the coming of the Son of Man, which of course would be the second coming. So Jesus is kind of, like I said, this is kind of an eschatological eschatological viewpoint uh, where Jesus is pointing to his eventual return. But what Luke is doing throughout this is he's emphasizing the need for faithful constancy, like uh, what we see in the widow. This type of faith will lead to justice and is part of the pursuit of justice. So the question regarding faith seems to be Jesus asking, will you, will we have the persistent faith of the widow to seek justice for the things that are unjust? The persistence uh, to pray to God to end the wrongs that are faced here on earth. That's, that's the question related to faith that we see here at the end from Jesus. And we continue on and look at this and come back to the original question from the Pharisees in chapter 17, verse 20 through 21, regarding when and the disciples' questions of where, but he doesn't answer their questions because he doesn't answer their questions then. And, you know, this is just a continuing conversation. It's not like all of a sudden we're in chapter 18, so we're in a different, completely different conversation. The conversation continued from chapter 17. But Jesus has changed the terms of the discussion to, of course, not when and where, but instead to, will you be ready? Or will the people be ready? Will they be? Will they have the faith? Will they continue to live within the faith when he returns? So it doesn't matter when he returns. Will you be ready when he returns? Unlike the reticent judge, uh, God will provide justice for his people and will not seek out a bribe or be reluctant to met out justice. We need to keep that in mind uh, as well as we move forward. So keep that question, just that thought in mind here as we look at the end of verse 8. So nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will you find faith on earth? Will those, uh, will the followers of Christ be remain faithful? Will they continue to be faithful to to God? Will they continue to be people of justice? Uh, will, they, will, will Jesus find that when he returns? Some have looked at this a little bit differently, uh, and it's more related to uh, how a lot of people just lose their faith. And I don't, and I, I can see an argument to that, and I can see a point to that, and how when you look at the current church, well, you look at the Western church, you, you think it's falling apart. But if you look at the church in other parts of the world, it's exploding. So you have to look from a global perspective of what's happening related to to the church. And uh, it seems to be exploding because these are people of faith. And there are people of faith, of course, all over the world, in the West and all, all, all parts of the world. So I think it's more about are you going to be people of faith who do the work of God, who live by the Word of God and are faithful to the Word of God and are faithful to those who are uh, the widow, the alien, the orphan? Are you faithful to those who, uh, who are in need? And that's what we're seeing here. We'll continue to live in that way. All right. Well, we did it. Can you believe it? 50 minutes in. Two sets of scripture here. This is like a record, I think, in some ways and somehow. Anyways, uh, next week is the last time. The last one we'll be doing on the difficult sayings of Jesus. So, blows my mind too. But and then we'll we'll take some breaks. I'm actually doing a class on Revelation for the students for three weeks, but that's not uh, so. We'll do that. I don't think we'll record that at all. We actually, if you're interested in Revelation, if you go to uh, the church's uh, YouTube channel, you'll find everything I did on Revelation several months ago. And then probably in the fall, we'll start back up with some new videos. I'm not sure what we'll be doing yet, but we'll be doing something uh, related to the scripture, which is easy. Have a great rest of your day.
Thanks. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.